You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Edison, Franklin, Tesla, Da Vinci, Bell, Wright, Marconi, Babbage, Goodyear. These inventors' names are synonymous with the technologies that define modern life. They have another thing in common, too. They're all white men. But many black inventors have helped to mold our world, even if their names aren't as well known. And no, I'm not talking about George Washington Carver. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As I've said before, history is written all white men all the way down. In honor of Black History Month, here is a two-parter on black inventors who've made our lives easier, and in some cases, even saved them. Black History Month is in February not as a short shrift, but because many important events in the civil rights movement happened in February, like the birth of W.E.B. Du Bois, the swearing-in of the first black senator, the founding of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and the death of Malcolm X. Bonus fact, the Marvel characters Professor X and Magneto are allegories for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, respectively. If you listened to one of our earliest episodes, Firsts That Weren't, you'll know that the idea of a light source made by passing a current through material in a sealed glass was not unique or original to Thomas Edison. He and his team built on the work of others, including Louis Latimer. Latimer was born in Massachusetts in 1848 to parents who had escaped slavery in Virginia six years earlier. Louis Latimer's father, George, had been recaptured by his erstwhile owner, but the situation gained such notoriety it even reached the Massachusetts Supreme Court before George was purchased by abolitionists who set him free. Louis served in the United States Navy for the Union during the Civil War and was honorably discharged. After the war, Latimer secured a position as an office boy with a patent law firm. This would prove a fortuitous hiring, for Latimer and maybe all of us. His skill at drawing the designs for patent applications saw him promoted to head draftsman, which also brought a substantial raise, from $3 a week to 20 That same year, Latimer, along with W.C. Brown, created an improved design for train bathrooms, a feature you definitely wanted working to its fullest if you were going to be on the train for days at a time, as people were back then. In 1876, Latimer was contacted by a teacher for deaf children who needed sketches done for his patent application for a communication device. The device would be the telephone, and the teacher was Alexander Graham Bell. Latimer rushed to finish the patent application, which was submitted mere hours before another application was submitted by Elisha Gray for a similar device. But that's a story for another day. 
A few years later, Latimer was hired by the U.S. Electric Lighting Company in Bridgeport, Connecticut as the assistant manager and head draftsman. U.S. Electric Lighting was owned by Hiram Maxim, a chief rival to Thomas Edison. Electric lights were made out of a glass bulb which surrounded a carbon wire filament, generally made of bamboo, paper, or thread. The lack of air inside the bulb meant that the filament would glow rather than combust when the electrical current caused it to heat up. Early filaments were made of things that burned up quickly, like after only a few days quickly. A disposable light bulb was unlikely to see wide adoption, so the key to success would be in making the filaments, and thus the bulbs, last longer. Latimer devised a way of encasing the filament in, counterintuitive as it may seem, a cardboard envelope. This stopped the carbon from snapping, prolonging the useful life of the bulb, making them more efficient, more desirable, and by the economy of scale, less expensive. Electric lights were soon being added to homes and streets, chasing away the dark and the previous solutions of candles and gaslights. While we've largely forgotten Latimer and his simple but very effective contribution, he was well known in his time. Not only was he sought after to continue improving incandescent lighting, but as more major cities began wiring their streets for electric lighting, Latimer was dispatched to lead the planning teams. He helped to install the first electric power plants in Philadelphia, New York, and even up into Montreal, as well as overseeing the installation of lighting in railroad stations, government buildings, and major thoroughfares. In an apparent spirit of keep your friends close but your enemies closer, Thomas Edison hired Latimer in 1890 as chief draftsman and patent expert in the legal department of the Edison Electric Light Company, which would eventually become General Electric. There, Latimer drafted drawings and documents for Edison's patents, as well as looked for patent applications that could infringe on an Edison patent, which sometimes required him to testify in court. He was also the author of Incandescent Electric Lighting, a practical description of the Edison system, the definitive work on the subject at the time. The name Louis Latimer was included as a charter member of the Edison Pioneers, a distinguished group of people deemed responsible for creating the electrical industry. Not one to rest on his laurels, Latimer continued to invent. In 1894, he created a safety elevator. How was it safe? Well, for starters, you were much less likely to fall down an open elevator shaft. Latimer's other inventions ranged from a locking rack for hats and coats, so no one could steal yours while you were eating or take yours by accident, to an apparatus for cooling and disinfecting air in hospitals that removed dust particles and helped to slow the spread of bacteria. He also painted, wrote poetry and music, and worked to improve the civil rights for black citizens in the U.S., all while continuing to invent. In his lifetime, Louis Latimer received seven patents in his own name, two under Maxim, and one shared with a co-inventor. As with the filaments and incandescent bulbs, it's often a third party's improvement on a design that makes it practical and therefore successful. Such was the case with the electric transducer technology, which is found today in 90% of microphones, including the one I'm talking into right now. The word that sounded like a mispronunciation is electret, E-L-E-C-T-R-E-T, meaning a permanently polarized piece of dielectric material analogous to a permanent magnet. Luckily, we don't need to understand how the sausage is made to learn about James West. 
Born in Virginia in 1931, West enjoyed taking appliances and machines apart to see how they worked. If I had a screwdriver and a pair of pliers, anything that could be opened was in danger, West later recalled. After what is only referred to as an accident with a radio he had tinkered with, which is burying the lead slightly, West became doubly fascinated by electricity and knew that that was where his future lay. His parents were less convinced of his chances of landing a technical career in the Jim Crow South and hoped that he might instead become a doctor. Undeterred, West studied physics at Temple University, spending his summers as an intern in Bell Labs' acoustic research department. He was hired on as an acoustical scientist after getting his bachelor's degree in physics in 1957. In 1960, West and a colleague set out to make a microphone that was more sensitive, smaller, and less expensive than the mics that were on the market at the time. Electret mics had been invented in Japan in 1920, but wouldn't be a marketable product for another 40 years. The quality was too poor, and the service life was limited. West's design relied on improving the electret transducers. I would like to explain to you what an electric transducer is and how it works, but even after watching several YouTube videos on the subject, I'm like a monkey with a math problem. I tried. I really did. Any husky. West design solved the past shortcomings, and by the end of the 1960s, the electric microphone, also called a condenser mic, was in mass production and quickly cemented itself as the standard technology not only for microphones for singing or recording speech, but in telephones, camcorders, baby monitors, hearing aids, and more. Without West's work, microphones would not have been small enough, effective enough, or cheap enough to include in many products. West went on to be appointed President-Elect of the Acoustical Society of America, a member of the National Academy of Engineering, was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, and holds more than 250 patents. He's also been outspoken on the need to get more women and people of color into science and technology. Do you remember the Henson Workshop show Dinosaurs? Wanna give Daddy a kiss? Not the mama, not the mama, not the mama! That is starting to bother me. Yeah, that one. It was so good. Like a lot of TV shows, Dinosaurs did a Christmas special, but unlike the Flintstones, who inexplicably celebrated the birth of Christ no less than three times, Dinosaurs gathered the family together to celebrate the most important thing in their home, the refrigerator. The fridge changed them from nomads to suburbanites. The Sinclair family would have loved Frederick Jones. Jones was born in Ohio in 1893 to a white father and a black mother who left them when Frederick was young though accounts vary if that was by her choice or her death. His father, unable to raise him alone, sent Jones to be raised by a priest in Kentucky, and the father died two years later. At age 11, Frederick Jones decided to take his chances fending for himself. Despite a challenging childhood, he was a prodigy. He worked what jobs he could, including being a janitor in a mechanic shop. It was here that he discovered his knack for working on cars and other machines. He was so good he was eventually made foreman of the shop. Through his teens and young adulthood, Jones taught himself mechanical and electrical engineering and invented a wide range of devices. By the time he was 20, Jones was able to secure an engineering license in Minnesota. 
His skills served him and others well when World War I found him in the Army, where he was often called upon to repair equipment. After the war, the town in which Jones lived decided to fund a new radio station, and Jones built its transmitter. He also developed a device to combine moving pictures with sound. You know, the talkies. A local businessman hired Jones to improve the sound equipment that his firm produced for the film industry. From family cars, to radio transmitters, to talking pictures and beyond, Jones continued to expand his interests in the 1930s. He designed and patented a portable air cooling unit for trucks carrying perishable food. Forming a partnership with the aforementioned businessman, Jones founded the U.S. Thermo Control Company. Refrigerated trucking revolutionized a number of industries, including shipping and grocery stores. Grocery chains were now able to import and export products that were previously unavailable and could only be shipped in as canned goods, which are never as good. Thus, the frozen food industry was created and the world saw the emergence of the supermarket. In addition to installing the Thermo King refrigerated units in trucks and tractor trailers, Jones modified the original design so they could be outfitted for trains, boats, and ships. This was handy when World War II came along and the war effort proved good for business, as Jones's business proved good for the war effort. Refrigerated trucks weren't just handy for moving food, but were essential for getting medicine and blood, more on that later, to the troops on the front lines. Always looking to improve his designs, Jones developed a prototype that would eventually allow airplanes to parachute these units behind enemy lines to waiting troops. By 1949, U.S. Thermo Control was worth millions. You'll find Frederick Jones's name on more than 60 patents. Most have something to do with refrigeration, but his curriculum vitae also includes patents relating to x-ray machines, engines, and sound equipment. He became the first African-American elected to the American Society of Refrigeration Engineers and was posthumously awarded the National Medal of Technology in 1991. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. As I do each week, I want to give my sincere thanks to everyone who has boosted the signal on our social media at Facebook and Instagram.com slash your brain on facts and Twitter at brain on facts pod. Folks like Eric, Richard, Marja, apologize if I mispronounced that, and great podcasts like Strange Animals, Odd Dad Out, and especially Ignorance Was Bliss, who had me on her show this past week. And y'all, if you think I do good research, I can't hold a candle to Kate over at Ignorance Was Bliss. So definitely check out the episode that we did together about the silent twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons. How did you do with last week's clues? The pictures were various containers of milk, a pregnant man, and Adam Baldwin as animal mother from Full Metal Jacket. The topic was strange gestation slash incubations, birth and nursing in the animal kingdom. The first person to correctly guess the week's topic before the episode posts on Tuesday morning on any of our social media platforms gets your Brain on Facts stickers. There haven't been any new reviews in the past week through podcast apps, but that gives me the chance to catch up on the stuff that people have written on our Facebook page that the Pages app didn't tell me about. Christina recommended the show, saying, Moxie, we found your podcast driving home one day around Christmas, and I listened to your Christmas special. We've listened to you ever since. We love your podcast. I count it as schoolwork. We're homeschoolers. And now I'm indoctrinating my dad. Thank you. She left two recommendations, actually, adding, Moxie has such an interesting podcast. Her voice is beautiful. I love listening to her with my kids. And thank you so much, Christina. Christina also supports the show over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, along with the most recent members added, Urspo, Shanti, and Mackenzie. Now, normally, this is the part where I would ask you to go over to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, but today I'm going to ask you not to do that. Not yet, at least. Because there's a special offer coming up between the 16th and 29th of February, everyone who joins patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts or upgrades their existing membership, gets a special edition, limited run, I'm only making as many as I need for my patrons, Weird Fact Cards Against Humanity expansion pack. Once the special offer is over, no more will be printed. But the Patreon gets even better, because after the 29th of February, the tiers will cost less. The $2 tier is still $2, but the $5 tier becomes $4, and the $10 tier becomes $8. But wait, there's more, because you'll be getting more content. Beginning during the special offer period, every member at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts gets to hear Spot the Lie, a multi-host show with 80% amazing facts, but 20% complete BS. The $4 tier will get one bonus mini-episode per month. The $8 tier gets two. That's a passle more bonus facts for your brain. Plus, there's the stickers and voting on the episode topics. So head on over to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts between the 16th and the 29th to sign up. At the top of the show, I teased inventions that save lives. While it's fairly clear that getting food, medicine, and blood to frontline troops saved lives, Jones is far from being the only black inventor whose work did so. 
You could make the argument that incandescent bulbs made it safer to be outdoors, or light operating theaters adequately so surgeons can see, or that tiny microphones have helped us be instantly connected, which is handy if you need to summon help after someone hits your car. But a black inventor helped to reduce your risk of getting hit in the first place, as well as save the lives of thousands of soldiers. Garrett Morgan was born seventh of 11 children in a poor Kentucky family in 1877. Though when was the last time you heard of a rich family having that many kids? Morgan set out into the world at age 14, traveling north to Ohio in order to receive a better education, taking work as he found it. In Cleveland, he learned the inner workings of the sewing machine, and in 1907 opened his own sewing machine sales and service business. In 1909, he opened a tailoring shop, which is where he would begin on his first invention. He noticed that the needle of the sewing machine moved so fast that the friction with woolen materials could scorch the fabric. Some sort of lubricant was in order, he reasoned, and began to experiment. One day, when called away for supper, he wiped his hands on a piece of pony fur cloth, just like leather that still has fur on it. After supper, he found that the fur was standing straight up. To see if the fluid he'd been working with had straightened the fibers, Morgan put some on his neighbor's Airedale, a wiry-haired dog. It worked so well that the neighbor didn't recognize his own pet. Morgan then tried it on himself and found that he'd inadvertently invented the first human hair straightener. He marketed the product under the name G.A. Morgan Hair Refining Cream, sold by his G.A. Morgan Refining Company, which became a very successful business. His next invention three years later was originally called the Safety Hood. The patent calls it a breathing device, but we now call it a gas mask. The Safety Hood consisted of a hood worn over the head of a person that had one tube that reached near to the ground for clean air and a separate tube to exhale through. The bottom of the inlet tube was lined with a sponge type of material to act as a filter. Morgan intended the device to be used to provide a portable attachment which will enable a fireman to enter a house filled with thick suffocating gases and smoke and to breathe freely for some time therein, thereby enable him to perform his duties of saving life and valuables without danger to himself from suffocation. The device is also efficient and useful for protection of engineers, chemists, and working men who are obliged to breathe noxious fumes or dust derived from the materials in which they are obliged to work. The National Safety Device Company, with Morgan as its general manager, was set up to manufacture and sell the device, which would soon be winning prizes at industry events. The true test of the product came on July 24, 1916, when there was an explosion in a tunnel being dug under Lake Erie. The tunnel quickly filled with smoke, dust, and poisonous gases. 32 workers were trapped. There was no safe way to enter the site to rescue them. Then someone remembered Morgan's safety hood. Garrett and his brother Frank quickly arrived on the scene and donned the safety hood and entered the tunnel. After a heart-wrenching delay, Garrett appeared from the tunnel carrying a survivor on his back, as did his brother seconds later. They weren't able to save all of the workers, but those who were rescued couldn't have been reached without the safety hood. Soon, orders came pouring in from fire and police departments across the country. Then the orders started being canceled as people found out Morgan was black. 
Apparently, when faced with the choice of gasping for breath as you die or acknowledging that a black person made something useful, some people would rather die. The poisonous gas attacks of World War I made them reconsider. Morgan's safety hood, now called a gas mask, was ordered by the U.S. Army and saved the lives of thousands of soldiers in the trenches. Saving those lives would have been enough for some, but not for Garrett Morgan. After witnessing a collision between a car and a horse carriage that knocked the car's driver unconscious and required the horse be destroyed, Morgan determined to develop a way to automatically direct traffic without the need for a policeman or other person to be present. He patented an automatic traffic signal, which he said could be operated for directing the flow of traffic and provide clear and unambiguous visible indicators. GE bought the rights to the device for $40,000, more than half a million dollars today. Today's modern traffic lights are based on Morgan's original design. At that point, Morgan was honored by many influential people like John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, who Garrett Morgan would name one of his sons after. Although his successes had brought him fame and fortune, as it were, Morgan never forgot that his fellow black citizens still suffered injustices and difficulty. He served as the treasurer for the Cleveland Association of Colored Men, which eventually merged with the NAACP. If you've ever received a blood transfusion, you have Dr. Charles Drew to thank for it. That's because in 1938, Dr. Drew helped to pioneer a long-term technique for plasma storage, which helped in the production and transfer of blood for transfusions. Drew was born in 1904 into a middle-class family in the interracial, Foggy Bottom neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Drew won an athletic scholarship to Amherst College in Massachusetts, graduating in 1926. Despite being an outstanding athlete, he was only allowed to join a fraternity at Amherst as an off-campus member because, say it with me now, segregation. After college, Drew spent two years as a professor of chemistry and biology, the first athletic director and the football coach at the historically black private Morgan College in Baltimore to pay for his medical school. At McGill University in Montreal, Drew ranked second in his graduating class of 127 students and received a degree as a doctor of medicine and master of surgery. Doesn't any task sound better if you're master of it? You could be master of buttering toast and I would line up to get some. After a few other appointments, Drew began graduate work at Columbia University in New York City on the award of a two-year Rockefeller Fellowship in Surgery. His postgraduate work earned him a Doctor of Science in Surgery at Columbia University. It was at Columbia that he gave a doctoral thesis on banked blood, based on exhaustive study of blood preservation techniques. Because he didn't have enough degrees, apparently, in 1940, he earned a Doctor of Science in Medicine degree, becoming the first black man to do so. All these years of study were inspired by a tragedy in his early life, the loss of his sister to tuberculosis. At the time that Dr. Drew was doing his research, blood could only be stored for a couple of days at a time. Drew discovered that by separating plasma from red blood cells, it would be possible to store it for a week, a significant improvement. He also discovered that the transfusion could be performed with plasma alone, broadening the scope and reach of those who could be treated. Working in the Department of Surgery at New York's Presbyterian Hospital alongside Dr. John Scudder, one of the nation's first blood transfusion specialists, 
Drew established and administered an early prototype program for blood storage and preservation, the sort of thing you think of when you think of a blood bank, but several times more useful than previous blood banks had been. By the time Drew received his doctorate in 1940, he'd developed a technique for long-term plasma storage, which led to him getting the nickname the Father of the Blood Bank. His work got put to a real test when the British government requested 5,000 vials of dried plasma for transfusions in military hospitals during World War II. To meet the need, Drew organized blood drives at New York City hospitals. 15,000 people donated over the course of five months in a program called Blood for Britain. The American Red Cross took note and asked Drew to become the first director of its blood bank as the United States prepared to enter the war. Drew accepted, and in February 1941, the Red Cross blood bank was underway, with 35 centers eventually set up throughout the country to store blood reserves for injured servicemen. Drew's work with the Red Cross, however, was short-lived. Later that year, Dr. Drew took a moral stand when the Red Cross announced it would segregate the blood of white and black donors. Drew denounced the decision on both moral and scientific grounds and resigned from his post in protest. Dr. Drew returned to Howard University as a chair of surgery with a mission to train the next generation of black medical students. In 1942, he became the first black surgeon to be an examiner on the American Board of Surgery, in 46 was elected to the International College of Surgeons, and in 47 launched a movement to persuade the American Medical Association to admit black members. Dr. Drew's life ended shortly before his 47th birthday, when he was killed in a car crash on a way to a medical conference in Tuskegee. Three students who'd been traveling with him survived the crash. Dr. Drew's injuries required blood transfusions, but the man who made it possible to store blood would not receive any. The hospital was for whites only. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Except that's not how it actually happened. Drew and three students were in a car crash, but he wasn't refused treatment. And he didn't get a transfusion because it was counterindicated by his injuries. According to one of the students come doctor riding with him, John Ford, Drew had a superior vena cavel syndrome. Blood was blocked getting back to his heart from his brain and upper extremities. To give a transfusion would have killed him sooner. Even the most heroic efforts couldn't have saved him. I can truthfully say that no efforts were spared in the treatment of Dr. Drew, and contrary to popular myth, the fact that he was a Negro did not in any way limit the care that was given to him. Remember, you can always find the script and all of the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep 
every night.